Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, this is Ben Kaznoka, partner here at Village Global. Today, our guest is Brad Feld. Brad is co-founder and managing director of Foundry Group, a venture capital firm with more than $2 billion under management. He's the author of many books. Most recently, he's co-author with Dave Jilk of The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, which will be the subject of today's conversation. In the second half of the chat, we'll be discussing some other lessons learned from Brad's career as a VC. Brad's a good friend of Village Global and to me personally, and we're honored to have him on the show. Brad, welcome to the podcast. And I am delighted to be virtually with you today. So let's start, Brad, with Nietzsche. Can you give us a brief overview of who Nietzsche was and where does he fit into the philosophy landscape? Nietzsche is an extremely misunderstood uh, philosopher, which is part of what makes, at least to me, makes him interesting. Uh, He is, from my frame of reference, a crossover and at sort of a key crossover point from uh, what I'll sort of colloquially call classical philosophy on one side to contemporary philosophy on the other. His primary body of work was <clears throat> between 1860 and 1880. So you have to go back to that point in time and think about sort of what our society and our norms were at that moment in time. And in the way that many entrepreneurs today are incredible disruptors of what the norms are uh, around different things, Nietzsche was an incredible disruptor uh, around the norms in his time frame. He was a provocateur in terms of his thinking, but he was not a provocateur who told you the answer. He was a provocateur who caused you to think. He also wrote extensively, very creatively. Um, so his writing wasn't like long treatises, but was often, you know, in uh, different poetic forms. It was often in snippets. It was a lot of sort of thoughts that came together and in a lot of cases contradicted each other if you read them literally. But if they then thought about the issue and kind of kept going with what Nietzsche had put out, it then caused you to have a deeper understanding of the topic that you know he was he was writing about. Well it's interesting. I was telling somebody yesterday that I was going to be interviewing you about the book and the person's response was funny time for Brad to be writing a book about the hero of the alt-right and white nationalists everywhere. And there is a great, one of my favorite parts of your book, actually, your and Dave's book is at the very end, uh, both the historical overview of who Nietzsche was, which is informative for those of us who are still getting up to speed, as well as the chapter titled, Don't Believe Everything You Hear About Nietzsche. And uh, when you lay out all of the people who have been influenced by him, um, left, right, and center, and every school philosophical thought, everybody seems to be able to grab a Nietzsche quote and contort it or interpret it in a way that suits whatever pre-existing agenda they have. So maybe the most important takeaway from the book, aside from the entrepreneurial advice, is anybody who's out there claiming that Nietzsche believed X, Nietzsche believed Y with a really strongly held view ought to be distrusted because he's a lot more complex of a thinker than uh, he might get credit for, huh? There's a very, uh, very important nuance to all of this. And, and the example you use with your friend is, is an awesome one. And it's, it's one of the things, a dynamic of our contemporary society, which is we all know lots of things, but where we learned the thing we know 
often is multiple steps removed from the source of the thing. I'll use my own experience with Nietzsche. When uh, Dave Joke, who was my co-author, and I started talking about uh, Nietzsche, every single thing I thought I knew about Nietzsche was incorrect, literally just incorrect, including the phrasing of the famous Nietzsche quotes and sort of my own interpretation of them. I didn't know much about Nietzsche, right? But but the couple of things I knew. The alt-right contemporary dynamic is and fascinating. So Dave, Dave and I, early on, we started talking about this, like, you know, I'm Jewish. Um, I find, you know, uh, the Nazis to be reprehensible. I find certain behavioral norms to be ones that I just can't subscribe to uh, in any way, shape or form. And, you know, if you said, well, you know, how do you relate to some of these norms of the alt-right? My answer would be um, not in a particularly gracious or generous way, right? Very negative in terms of my own belief system. You know, was Nietzsche anti-Semitic? Was Nietzsche, uh, did he hate women? Was he misogynistic? And there are are different dynamics around how people talk about it today. But when Dave and I did the primary research on each thing, where we looked at the alt-right piece, and we, we went and went deeper and deeper to try to find the original source of this, almost all of these instances are people who are repeating things that are repeating things that are repeating things that are often very, very loosely connected to a Nietzsche thing. And, you know, your point that the subtlety in your point is important, which is Nietzsche said a lot and he said a lot of provocative stuff. And there was history. A key part of the history is he died in 1900, but he was really an invalid from 1890 to 1900. He went crazy and lots of discussions. Did he have syphilis? Did he lose his marbles? Was he, he always had health issues. And he stopped doing anything well before the Nazis and, and the rise of, you know, the German nationalists. In fact, he gave up Germany as his country because he was, did not like nationalism. And, and one of the phrases that people associate with Nietzsche a lot, just while we're on the topic of how he's misunderstood, is the idea of slave morality. Can you just give us the one minute th- thumbnail on what slave morality is and why is it called that? So I'm going to be careful of this because I will get it wrong and then it will be repeated over and over again. One of the things Dave and I talked about was we very deliberately are not Nietzsche scholars. And I would tell you that there have been probably thousands of pages written on uh, slave morality and lots of interpretation of what Nietzsche meant. And the interesting thing about it is, and, and slave morality was not one that I went particularly deep on as an example, which is why I will get it wrong. But if you, if you use others um, and like a really good sort of simple one would be somebody, you know, you'll hear over and over again, Nietzsche was a Nazi and the short, point would be, well, Nietzsche wasn't, his sister was. And when Nietzsche died, his sister took over, got his all of his work, and she took his unfinished work and wrote a posthumous book that contorted many of the things he said to support the themes and beliefs of Nazi party. So this is another part of it, which is the scholarship of Nietzsche is very complicated because it's not just what Nietzsche wrote. But then what's interpreted? And yeah, I didn't know that about the sister. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, look, if you if, if, if you take a bunch of stuff that I've written on scraps of paper and you have an agenda, 
and your agenda has something nothing to do with at all what I believe, you can probably take all those scraps of paper and put something together that suits your agenda that doesn't fit my agenda. Well, so, I mean, the, by the way, just the ethics of posthumous like publications, when David Foster Wallace died, his wife gathered all of his scraps of, of incomplete manuscript about the IRS and boredom. And I got published, you know, without his explicit permission, obviously. Um, and I'm always curious about the ethics of that, you know, like, and I guess it's just the spouse, the, 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 the remaining kin can decide, but a book was published with his name on the bottom and he did not explicitly authorize that or even deem any of those notes and manuscripts complete. Now, by the way, just cause I know you're a DFW fan as well. He, you may know this, but he did annotate some things. He almost, or cause he committed suicide. He did organize some of his papers in such a way that led his estate to believe that it was his intention for this stuff to be published. But Generally speaking, I think the you know advice to listeners to this podcast: someone close to you dies, don't go through their files or something <laughs> after they're dead. Well, the the other advice would be if you're serious about a thing, go a couple of layers deeper. And when you go a couple of layers deeper, you still might conclude something, which is fine. But go a couple of levels deeper. And you know, in, in today's Twitter land, we've been conditioned not to. And in in uh, when writing this book with Dave, one of the things that was good muscle building and good reinforcement for me, and you know, you and Ben, you and I have spent lots of time having these kinds of conversations where we we talk a provocative thing is tossed out and then we bat it back and forth for a while. And you know, I think I'm probably one of the people in your life who, you know, some of the things that become the conventional wisdom because it gets batted around and reinforced so much. You know, my response is, why? Why is that the conventional wisdom? Why, why do you believe that? And it's not that I don't believe it necessarily, and it's not that I'm necessarily right, but that by having that discussion, you actually go a step deeper. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great meta takeaway on this the whole Nietzsche topic, which is he's misunderstood. Uh, people hear sound bites, they repeat him. That is an indictment of our modern intellectual culture. You know, another person who we both uh, like and admire, Cal Newport, has a line where he says, my job is not to stay on top of things, it's to get to the bottom of things. Uh, the way you get to the bottom of things is you, uh, you know, focus on a small set of topics and really go deep. And it's actually one of, in, in my own uh, time in the venture business, it's one of the most challenging parts of the job because there's so many different things to keep up on. It's very, very hard to create the space to go deep. Even in preparation for this conversation, I, you know, I looked up slave morality, for example, yesterday, spent 20 minutes, really didn't understand it, you know, and then it's on to the next topic, you know, and the 500 other emails. And so it's very hard to feel ultra knowledgeable on anything. So I, it's, I guess the book for, for you and Dave, it's a great forcing function to actually have to engage more deeply with a topic like this. Two, two comments. One is, is a forcing function. It, it, more than that, it was great fun. Right. Yeah, it's it's uniquely fulfilling. I mean, that's why people maybe don't. If you haven't done it in a while, people forget what it's like to actually right. uh, master something. To, to, um, to go deep on something new. And the other, and I'll use this, you know, the, the slave morality uh, comment. You know, my immediate reaction to you is not to try to come up with a clever response, which is the norm. It's, that is a cultural norm now. A clever response, a deflecting response, something that suits my argument. Yeah, the hot take. The hot take um, versus. Think about what I said. I said, I don't know enough about it to feel comfortable doing a quick assertion. I've read about it. I could give you my view of a definition of it, but I don't actually even want somebody to amplify my view of a definition because my view of a definition will almost by definition be shallow. 
So let's let's now talk about then along those lines. Let's talk about some of the entrepreneurial advice that Nietzsche has for us to benefit from. So we'll go through a handful of quotes from from him that that you and Dave quote in your book, and would love just to unpack what the takeaway is for founders. So first, Nietzsche has a quote about a fly repeatedly hitting a window. It can see through, but keeps being surprised by the glass. Uh, You guys say that entrepreneurs, even though they understand their business and market deeply, still end up sometimes being that fly hitting the window over and over again. Can you explain what you mean by that image and what's the lesson for founders? Yeah, I have a joke I like to make, which is I'm only going to make that mistake three more times. There is a, a mythology that entrepreneurs learn quickly from their failure. And, and my own experience as both an entrepreneur and as an investor is that that's, that's not true, is that, you know, there is a belief that you're going to figure it out. And sometimes you figure it out by just trying harder at the same thing and understanding when you are that fly that's banging into the wall is important. By the way, one of the things we try to do in the book, and I would say it with this as well, is not to make an absolute assertion. So, I'm not trying to tell people how to solve the problem. In other words, you know, if you're if you feel like you're banging into a wall, well, hey Brad, how can I diagnose when that's happening? I don't know. But when you're having trouble, ponder whether you are behaving like that fly. And well, if I'm behaving like that fly, what should I do differently? Well, here's some different ways to think about it. But there isn't one answer where the answer is, oh, well, the best way is to zoom away and then fly around it but instead to acknowledge and recognize that you're in a place that's not working. Well, I think it's it's the hardest thing though for entrepreneurs. I mean, two frameworks come to mind. One is Seth Godin's book, The Dip, um, which I don't, the only thing I remember from that is is the concept of the the little dip, which is, and this premise is, how do you know whether you're almost at the, you're almost coming up the other side or whether you're actually just hitting the ground over and over again and there is no upward swing. And then Eric Reese's construct of pivot or persevere. And this idea of like, nope, just keep your head down and keep banging away, stay resilient, stay persistent. That's the key to success versus no, you actually need to change your strategy. Like what you're doing isn't working and you are you are exemplifying the definition of insanity by trying it over and over again. Right. And well, the judgment call there is really hard. The judgment call is hard in an absolute sense. There's a meta here as well, which is I think Eric's frame of reference is completely consistent with the quote, which is, um, the way I, I've uh, encapsulated Eric's statement in my, my work, as I say to entrepreneurs, uh, a successful company is an endless series of small experiments, many of which fail. And the key is when an experiment fails, you create a new hypothesis and you test the hypothesis again. And when the, when, when the experiment works, uh, then uh, what you want to do is a lot more of that. And That's in a lot of ways what Eric is saying is you're constantly wanting to adjust from the data you get back from customers, from the data you get back from users versus, you know, you ran into a problem and you say, well, I'm going to go try a totally different vector. There's another part of it, which is also really interesting, which is I get this question a lot, especially through all the Techstars activity where entrepreneurs say, when should I know when to stop doing this business? When do I know that this isn't working or when should I know to make a major pivot? And I have a couple of different ways of answering it, but one of them is to tell people to view the entrepreneurial experience not as a singular company, but to view it as the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life. And if you are, we have a chapter in the book uh, uh, called Obsession. If you are still obsessed about what you are doing, which I like to define as, were you put on planet Earth to work on this problem? 
a healthy version of its obsession. If you are if you are put on planet Earth to work on this problem, keep working on it. The day you wake up and you say, I don't think this is what I was meant to spend my time on. That's the moment at which you either need to do a hard pivot or call it quits on the thing you're doing. So different layers of that Nietzsche quote can apply depending on where you are in the arc. The only, the, I, I love that. And the only area I'd push back on or nuance is the idea that if you wake up one day and have that, that dreaded feeling of maybe this isn't my day, perhaps, perhaps it's if you, if you feel that way for 10 days in a row or 10 days out of a hundred or something, because we all have bad, there are days when in the I'm entrepreneurial totally, journey, right? Totally, you, totally agree. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm being absolute, but totally agree. And, and you know, one, and, and we'll put this in the show notes. By, I did by, by the way, by the way, if it was one day, I would have quit when I'm doing a long, long time. Because <laughs> I've, I've had plenty of those days. Indeed. And what, you know, one thing Eric Reese says, and we'll put a link in the show notes when we did a, an event with him, he's an LP at Village for some of our founders. One other additional tactical advice that, that Eric has, which I like is, is a lot of times in early stage startups, there's this, there's this so much, it can be distracting to constantly be revisiting, wait, are we on the right track? Should we pivot? Should we persevere? Should we pivot, persevere? And like every other day you get dragged into this discussion. So he's like literally schedule pivot or persevere meetings every month or every quarter, whatever makes sense. And for those two hours, you're going to ask the self, should you pivot or not? And when you're not in that meeting, you're focused on heads down execution. And so just schedule that time. And so just create that cadence. Otherwise, it's easy to get sucked into the vortex of reflecting on whether to pivot or not. Um, let's uh, go to another uh, Nietzsche quote, Brad. So one of Nietzsche's core principles that you talk about in the book is that achieving great success often requires that, your first, that you first experience great pain. Can you explain why pain is required and how does it translate to entrepreneurship? And have any of your successes, do you think, been born out of uh, some pain that you've experienced? Yeah. So there's, again, multiple ways to define pain. And I think one of the reasonably well understood uh, colloquialisms today is around the notion of successful entrepreneurs often are ones who have experienced both success and failure. There are some entrepreneurial stories that are, you know, first company, first product, and, you know, just incredible trajectories. Um, But there's many examples where the first thing might have been successful, but then the next thing the entrepreneur does is a failure, or the first thing or two the entrepreneur does is a failure. In fact, I like to talk about, I I used to refer to it as my first company, which was a company that I, Dave and I started in 1987 and sold in 1993 to a public company, and it was a financial and a functional success. That was actually my third company. My first company, which Dave was a co-founder with two other people, was a failure, And my second company, which I co-founded with somebody else, was a failure. So this notion of acknowledging that the entrepreneurial experience involves pain, where failure is one type of pain, but even then think about successful entrepreneurs and how the pain of their experiences uh, were profound at different points of their journey. Think about Microsoft and Bill Gates uh, and the late 90s and all of the breakup Microsoft uh, judicial, you know, stuff. Think about, you know, the last three or four years of Facebook, and you can have your own view of how the last three or four years of Facebook played out. So I'm not making an assertion about it, but there is no question that there was an enormous amount of stress in the system uh, around many different aspects of things going on in their business. Or think about, you know, the mythology of Steve Jobs. And, you know, this incredible success that then turned into a thing that was really struggling that he then got kicked out of 
and then his creation of a new company, which had some foundational innovations that ultimately became incorporated back into Apple. But Next as a business by itself wasn't really a particularly successful business. And then if you look at the story of Pixar, which has become an amazingly successful business, you know, there are a couple of moments in time in Pixar where there's extraordinary pain um, in the business and amongst the leaders and the, the business dynamics itself. So kind of, you know, there's a, v- a very famous Nietzsche quote that everybody knows and repeats, which is, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Um, you know, that's become a cliche. I thought that was Kanye West originally. Gosh, exactly. I didn't know he exactly. I didn't sing it properly. <laughs> but but if, if you go deeper into that and actually start to read the context around it and think about it, it's part of the human experience. And so it's not just about entrepreneurship, but it's about learning. I mean, we, you know, things happen when there's stress on them. And that stress, you know, that friction, that conflict is often, you know, on some spectrum from uncomfortable to painful. Um, but in many, many cases, it's very powerful in terms of one's own learning and development. So I think it's I think it's a, it's, it's a great point. It's I think the effectiveness of this framing is the word pain. There's a lot of talk about failure. It's actually we're kind of talking about the same thing, but sometimes just the freshness of the word can uh, connect with people in a new way, and that's the art of spreading ideas. And and I think uh, I think it wor- really works in this in this in this context. Let's shift to a different. Can Nietzsche I quote can that- I give you another example for that? Sure. Yeah. Because because Dave and I came across that multiple times in in Nietzsche's quotes, and it's one of the things we've tried to do in this book is embrace words, even if they we interpreted them differently or our philosophy was different. In the section called Free Spirits, the title of the chapter is Obsession. Let me read the quote. It's a little bit long, so I'll read it slowly. The passion which seizes the noble man is a peculiarity without his knowing that it is so. The use of a rare and singular measuring rod, almost a frenzy, the feeling of heat in things that feel cold to all other persons, a divining of values for which scales have not yet been invented, a sacrificing on altars which are consecrated to an unknown God, a bravery without the desire for honor, a self-sufficiency which has superabundance and imparts to men and things. And Nietzsche used the word passion here. I'll encourage people to sort of read and ponder, but let me tell the story of what happened with Dave and I. Dave wrote a draft of an essay around this, you know, for the two or three page essay that we had interpreting it using the word passion. And he knew I I hate the phrase passion in the context of entrepreneurship. I think passion is overused. I think it's extremely easy to fake. And you also hate the word thrilled, right? I'm just trying to make a list of the words. You hate the word thrilled? I used the word thrilled just now. No, no, you didn't, but I'm just... we should have a compendium. I'm not a big, fan. Not a big fan. Compendium yeah. of words Brad doesn't like. Well, I hate passion. Thrilled is less bad to me than passion. I think passion is a tool of extroverts, and it's a it's a weakness for introverts. And so I think you get this incredible biasing effect uh, when you focus on the passion that somebody has about something. And you know, one of my throwaway lines is: somebody who's an extremely great salesman can be unbelievably passionate about a slice of bread. Like they can convince you that it's the most amazing slice of bread ever in the history of slices of bread. Like who gives a shit? Doesn't matter at all. And so I, I Dave knew this, but I said I hate this word. Like like I use the word obsession. I know the word obsession has negative connotations. I have obsessive compulsive disorder, so I'm well aware of of how obsessions can be bad. 
But there are very powerful characteristics when somebody is obsessed about something. Can be there's a positive definition, a positive characteristic, and we bounced it back and forth. And he says, you know, I think Nietzsche means obsession here. And then we went and we did the work, and the word obsession was not in common usage when Nietzsche was alive. Fascinating, right? So it's fascinating. Yeah. And and so our conclusion when we read the stuff around what he was saying is that he's actually defining the positive characteristics of obsession. And it would be very easy for somebody to read this quote and say, well, Nietzsche is not about obsession. He's about the entrepreneur needs to be passionate. And so the essay actually deconstructs the meaning of that sum, not to say this is right or this is wrong, but again, to provoke the entrepreneur on like, what does it mean to have a positive characteristic around obsession when you're trying to be disruptive. Well, it's, you know, all this talk about words and meaning, it, it, um, it reinforces the uh, why you uh, have the foreword of the book written by a co-founder of, of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, who wrote a master's uh, thesis in philosophy at Oxford on Wittgenstein and, and word games. And anyone who studied philosophy, which I have not, um, but has a deep appreciation for uh, words and their meaning. Um, and uh, it, I think it's one of the a powerful takeaway from your book is to be to go deep on what words mean, how they're used in different contexts, to be intentional about the words we use. So I, I love that about passion. I want to I want to raise a, a Nietzsche quote, Brad, that is a little less obvious or strikes me as one that one could push back on without perhaps elaboration. So on strong beliefs, Nietzsche said, quote, when the strength of a belief is emphasized, we should conclude that it is difficult to prove and unlikely to be true, end quote. So can you explain why, why did he say that a strongly held belief is less likely to be true than one that's held lightly. Yeah. So read the quote again. Uh, okay. The quote the is, when the, but, but yeah. read it again because the, okay. the words again matter here. Okay. When the strength of a belief is emphasized, we should conclude that it is difficult to prove and unlikely to be true. Difficult to prove, and he says and, and maybe he should have said or, unlikely to be true. If I'm 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 a VC, if I say to you I'm a value added VC. Is that a credit accrediting statement or a discrediting statement? It, it, it's interesting. It's it maybe depends how you say it and when you say it. Um, but I know what you mean, which is, are you overcompensating for the fact that it might not exist? Like, are you trying too hard to sell? Ben, I am really excellent at being a value added <laughs> VC. Is that crediting or discrediting? It's discrediting in my book because actions are going to speak more. There's this concept which bounces around in entrepreneurship, this idea of making a strong statement, but being willing to change your mind quickly, right? And, and this sort of uh, strong beliefs loosely held and sort of the whole dynamic around the debate of that and how that works. And that's an interesting one too, right? Strong beliefs loosely held is actually a reflection of this quote. Like if if you assert something really strongly to be provocative, to try to generate a conversation, but the other person that you're talking to doesn't, is not in the same power dynamic as you. They're one down from you. They're not in the place where they can challenge you as a peer, or they don't feel comfortable challenging you as a peer, or the environment isn't one uh, that provides that a lot of times strong beliefs become amplified and repu- repeated, even if the person says, oh, no, it's loosely held by me. Yeah. And and, all, and actually, there's also the, the sort of a cognitive bias or a risk. My line on that is strong beliefs weakly held will soon become strong beliefs strongly held because you begin saying something enough and repeating it to be provocative. And soon enough, you're going to start believing it and it's going to have a power of its own. 
the the other part, uh, the other part that I'll reinforce that with, which you see over and over and over again, is I like to say the more adverbs somebody has when they're talking about what they're going to do, the less you should be comfortable that they're going to be able to execute it. And I know that's a little wonky, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like the more qualifiers, positive qualifiers, the harder it is to be comfortable for me. You know, if you if you look at when somebody's trying to sell you something, and you know, one should acknowledge that what VCs sell is money, right? You sell money two directionally. You sell it to your LPs, hey, give me money, I'll give you more back, and you sell it to entrepreneurs, hey, take my money, I can help you make more money. And there's lots of other things that that VCs can do to help companies. And you watch VCs as an archetype put so much energy to amplifying how much they're going to help companies in advance of the investment. And when you ask an entrepreneur, hey, how did your VC do relative to the expectation that they set? It's fascinating to me over a long time of doing it that the VCs who spend the least amount of time overemphasizing what they can do. It's not that they don't say what they can do, but they they don't keep emphasizing it over and over with increasing exaggeration are the ones that often after the deal do the least. Not, Not uniformly, right? But it's the same kind of signaling. And the last comment I'll make, I mean, for me personally, a value system is I'm much more focused on when words and actions line up. It's it's it was the aha for me personally in my relationship with Amy. We were together for 10 years. Um, we write about this in our book, uh, Startup Life. At the beginning, we had a cataclysmic weekend where Amy said, I'm done. I thought she was just tired from the week. She was saying she was done being married to me because she was, she'd had enough. She loved me, but she'd had enough. We fortunately spent the weekend sort of talking about what that meant. And what it really meant was my words and my actions didn't line up. I would tell her that she was the most important person in the world to me. I loved her more than anything else. She meant more to me than anything. And then we'd be in the middle of dinner and my phone would ring, my cell phone. This is before you have caller ID. And I would answer it. Or, you know, we'd be doing something um, that didn't merit interruption. Uh, And our phone in our house would ring. And I would say, I would stop what I was doing and I would go answer the phone. Or I would be 30 minutes late to a nice dinner to celebrate something. Now, it, it, it wasn't that I was a bad person. It was that my words and my actions didn't match up. And this is in 2000. So, yeah, I make lots of mistakes. I fail at lots of things. I'm sure there are plenty of cases where my words and my actions don't match up. But Nietzsche's statement is another version of that, which is the more dislocated your words are from your actions, the, the more one should mistrust the person's future actions. So Brad, elsewhere in the book, you write that Nietzsche spent a lot of time hiking in Switzerland, which is beautiful. Um, and uh, he said, Nietzsche said that many injuries occur on the walk down rather than the grueling and technical climb up. I found that a fascinating construct. How does that analogy or point apply to business? Well, uh, I'll give an example of it applying in real life uh, first, because it just happened. Dave and I uh, went for a hike together uh, on Friday, we went for a, a six-hour hike um, on uh, on Boulder. Uh, did a couple of the technical peaks, and then on the easy part of the climb down, with about our path down with about two miles to go, uh, on a very sort of flat trail as part of Mesa Trail, I stumbled. I 
uh, then uh, we deconstructed what happened. I stumbled, which I would have recovered from, but I probably stepped in. I stepped in like a wet, muddy area and I slipped and I face planted so hard on the ground. I broke my glasses, you know, cut my lip, didn't break my nose, like recovered a couple of days later. Right. But just like it was a human instantiation of that moment. And we both laughed about it. I mean, I was, I guess, is that common? I mean, are there more just in the literal sense of it before I get any like do more, do more people get hurt on the way down from mountains on the way up? I don't know statistically if it's true, but it's, uh, you know, Dave and I joke about it when we hike, he hikes a ton. It's a very common thing. I mean, it is actually counterintuitively. It is sometimes harder to hike down, right. In terms of the footwork than hiking. Much, much harder. And so you're concentrating. You say, well, why did you fall? I fell because I was, we were deeply engaged in a conversation. I was, it was a flat part of the, the trail. So we were walking close to each other. I wasn't concentrating on the path ahead because I was too close to Dave. So I was probably looking at his back. And so when I tripped, like I, I didn't have the prior perceptive, re- perceptive recovery. When I'm going down the super steep, super rocky thing, I'm going really slow. I'm looking at every step and testing every footstep. So um, yes, it's a, it, it, it is a real thing. Again, statistically, I don't know, but it is a real thing. I, I think it's also very true in entrepreneurship. You know, at th- for those of you that are entrepreneurs, think about the moment where everything was, was cruising along and, and you stop paying as close attention to some of the things you should have paid attention to. And something then caused a cataclysmic failure um, or, you know, hey, the last four releases were good. So we're going to go ahead and release this on, you know, Friday afternoon because we've got our release thing down for our weekly releases. You know, you previously always released on Thursday, but it's you know, it was a short week because Monday was a holiday. So let's just release on Friday instead of Thursday. And that's the release that brings everything down. And you have to spend the entire weekend trying to get things up and you lose millions of dollars because the site's down. Or, you know, you you get casual about your leadership team onboarding because the last couple of people you've onboarded have gone pretty smoothly because they got into the cultural norms pretty quickly. So you're getting a little looser about it. As a as the entrepreneurial CEO, founder CEO, you're not focused on it as much as you are. The business is bigger. There's more things pulling your attention, and you you make a a, a, a critical hire. Let's say a CFO of somebody who's very very well regarded and capable, but does not subscribe to your cultural norms at all. But you didn't do the work to understand that in the interviewing process. Now they're on board, and all of a sudden you've got a person in a key critical position that not only do they not subscribe to their culture, your cultural norms as a company, they're not going to change because they're, you know, 52 years old and this is how they've done it four times. And, and so it's in those moments where you're not paying as much attention that sometimes some of the worst mistakes happen. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting idea and it does connect to the, the literal act of hiking, which is again, for amateurs like myself, you know, not a hardcore hiker. When I hike the assumption, because you're sweating on the uphill, this is the hard part. Oh, we made it to the summit. And now we just go back to the car. Now we go down the hill, go back to our go home. And so you take your eye off the ball, the mixed metaphors, right? You, fo- you, you don't focus as much. And so it's this expectations and reality mismatch. And so in the entrepreneurial journey, this is really, this is cautionary advice around things might be going well. And you might think that it's now time to sort of sit back and take it in and smell the roses and coast a little bit. But that's the very moment perhaps when you could be vulnerable to a mistake or a bad habit or a cultural malaise that, that, that comes about. So sort of, I think you quote uh, Andy Grove in the book, only the paranoid survive. It kind of is this, you have to remain paranoid all the time. There is no downhill climb. It's, it's all uphill, downhill, dangerous rocks, boulders all of the time. 
That's right. And uh, even on top of that, I think the more insidious thing is not when somebody consciously decides to coast. It's when you subconsciously or unconsciously start or don't pay as much attention. I'll use the hiking metaphor again. Uh, Dave and I probably sat down and took breaks twice or three times on this hike. We just sat down for a few minutes, enjoyed where we were, looked at the mountain, you know, and just sort of enjoyed the, the we're, we're, wherever we were, whatever spot. And we just stopped. That was a conscious, deliberate pause, coast, relaxation. When I had this stumble, I wasn't paying any attention. And I wasn't consciously not paying attention. My brain had just stopped paying attention to this thing I was doing that was hiking. And all of my attention had shifted to, again, that engagement that I had with Dave. The you know I wasn't even noticing what was around us. If you had said to me, where exactly on the trail did you stumble, except for the fact that I bumped my head enough that we sort of deconstructed what had happened, I probably couldn't have told you much about it. Well, I mean, now we're on to sort of, we're, we're not going to have time in this conversation to get to Stoicism versus Nietzsche versus Buddhism, et cetera. But, you know, what we're talking about is waking up, being present, remembering to recognize the presence, the present moment's experience, which is my favorite definition of mindfulness, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And I'm, I always think back to a line that Sam Harris had in his, in his excellent book, Waking Up, about imagine you're in a movie theater and the lights are down, you're watching the movie on screen. And then occasionally, this I'm sure has happened to everyone listening, you you notice the exit sign in green off in the corner of the theater. And you remember, oh, wait, I am in a theater. Like there, there's a there's a there's an exit sign. Like I'm actually watching a movie. I'm not in the movie. I'm watching the movie. And uh, so many of us uh, entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs alike sleepwalk through life and are actually not living in life moment by moment. Uh, we're somewhere else. Our heads are in the clouds. And so... Uh, at a more cultural organizational level, uh, this can really be a, a problem, right? It, it's sort of on autopilot, right? You're not living in the business every single day. You're not trying to reckon with it. What's actually happening? You're not recognizing the present moment's experience, right? Well, an important part of that is dealing with reality. And I would say dealing with reality, not just in your business, but in all aspects of your life. And it's it's particularly challenging um, and and exhausting, right? It's exhausting if you're you know, you're being vigilant continually in your business, um, but then you put no energy into being conscious of your own health and wellness. And, and in 2021, thankfully, we're at least talking about mental health and entrepreneurship again. And, you know, the stigma associated with mental health and entrepreneurship is diminished some from where it was in, you know, 2012 or 2013. Um, uh, but we we still really are, um, uh, in this place where people don't allocate enough, I would say entrepreneurs don't allocate enough energy to taking care of themselves in a way so that they can be uh, over a very long period of time, deeply and continually engaged uh, with what they're doing. Oh, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of figuring that out for yourself because there isn't a, here's the six rules to do it so much as understanding the importance of it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there definitely, so there's the emotional part of it, which is, do you have the emotional bandwidth to stay engaged and actually give a shit and and, and sort of stay awake? <laughs> um, and then there's actually the toolkit. You know, we had, uh, Eric had Julia Galef, who's author of an, a great new book called The Scout Mindset on, on, on this program a couple of weeks ago about cognitive bias and thinking clearly. And, you know, the pitch of Buddhism that always resonated with me was, 
this can help you see the world more clearly. Like our brains are riddled with cognitive biases that were inculcated from our, our ancestral home <laughs> in the caves, very ill-suited to navigate modern reality. And once you understand that, you, about how um, distorted a view you have of reality by default as a human in this world, then you can begin to take some action to remedy that and to actually uh, commit to um, overcoming these biases, biases that you know we all hear about and talk about, confirmation bias and some cost fallacy and all these sorts of things, but they really do distort our perception of reality. And I think when entrepreneurs achieve some level of success or there's some momentum, it's very easy for blinders to come on. Um, and as your power increases in the industry, right, you only start hearing certain things and we can be completely unconscious to the fact that this is happening. Unless, and as, as another person we both admire, Bob Wright, uh, would argue in his book, Why Buddhism is True, you, you actually have a spiritual undertaking to try to overcome this. Like he, his argument is it requires nothing less. This idea that you can just sort of verbalize it, like actually commit at your deepest core to trying to understand reality only then might you have a chance to see things unfold as they're unfolding. I'll, I'll, I'll add or end that segment with uh, a Nietzsche quote that I love, um, which I would, I would say does not directly, I'm going to use the word reflect because it's one of the things in the quote, uh, does not re- directly re- reflect what you just said, but is a wonderful adjacency and, and tools for Nietzsche or, or phrase for Nietzsche to give people when they are struggling because that is a common characteristic of leaders and entrepreneurs. And, and the quote, it's in a section, it's in the chapter called Free Spirits, which is a, a Nietzsche language, and it's about the individual. It's called Reflecting Your Light. And the quote is, seeing our light shining in the darkest hour of depression, sickness, and guilt, we are still glad to see others taking a light from us and making use of us as of the disk of the moon. By this roundabout right, uh, by this roundabout route, uh, we derive some light from our own illuminating facility, our own illuminate, illuminating faculty. We talk about sort of entrepreneur, depression, mental health, dealing with reality and that. And I have a narrative about one of my depressive episodes. But the power there is, as a leader, the people around you are still reflecting your light, even if you're in a dark hole. And the power of being a leader is recognizing that even if you are struggling the people around you can help reflect your light as a leader. And in moments of crisis, if you think about leaders who in moment of crisis dealt with reality versus the other archetype, which is in crisis, the leader didn't deal with reality. And we know lots and lots of leaders in tech and elsewhere that don't deal with reality, try to deflect what's going on, avoid it. Don't actually try to understand what's happening. Try to create misdirection. We know many companies who that's their MO, right? And there's a whole industry that's a crisis PR, that a big part of crisis PR is when you're in a crisis, deflect um, and try to wait until the next crisis for somebody else takes over. That's very different than the leader that said, what did we do wrong here? And I own it. I'm the leader. I own it. We own it. We need to fix it. And we need to create an environment where it doesn't happen again. That is so hard when you're in the middle of that crisis because of the stress. But if you well, are- and, and Brad, you're using, you're using the word we, um, which I think is really interesting and actually connects to the final Nietzsche quote that we'll talk about in this, in this episode uh, around 
you know, individuals versus groups. Because I think it's really interesting. If you're a CEO and you're trying to see the world more clearly, if you're trying to understand what's actually going on in your business, not what you want to be going on, what's actually going on, to what extent do you have a higher likelihood of success with that endeavor if you're engaged in that individually or with a group? So you quote in the book, uh, Nietzsche saying, quote, insanity in individuals is rare, but in groups, parties, nations, it is the rule, end quote. So can you unpack that? What, why, why, why is insanity rare at the individual level? Are you suggesting that group dynamics are sometimes more at risk? And how would you sort of react with respect to a CEO who wants to get better? Should they go talk to all their exact team members and board members and advisors and, and bone up that way? Or should they sit quietly in a dark room, meditate and contemplate on their own to arrive at truth? Yeah, I love this quote. And I love that you interrupted me to, to focus on this quote to, to finish with. The answer to your question is yes. You have to do both. And that is the key, is that so many leaders are unable to do both. Or the only way they can engage with people around them is to have reinforcement of their framing, right? The yes man or woman, the confirmation bias dynamic. Interestingly, when you intersect both uh, in, in an organization, you get uh, the, the significant dynamic of more divergent viewpoints that'll help you get to your thought process, but against the backdrop of you exercising your own thought process. One of the things that I, I think Nietzsche was railing about at this moment in time was uh, essentially you know, some version of the large group. And, you know, we have a chapter called Groupthink. Like there's, there's really good stuff with Nietzsche where he's talking about the importance of individual thinking rather than conforming, conforming to the norm of adopting behavior that is the norm of doing things other people say you should do. He's, again, being provocative in, in his way. And for him, the, the large crowds, the large groups of people Again, 18, you know, late 1800s, this is before crowdfunding and before, you know, even wisdom of crowds has some interesting stuff around this. How the critical thinking gets diluted as you increase the number of people who are involved in it. That doesn't mean two or three or four people is going to eliminate critical thinking, but the more people you get involved, the more the critical thinking gets diluted. Well, I think there's a practical point here, which I, I think I first saw Bob Sutton and Jeffrey Pfeiffer refer to, who are management thinkers at Stanford, uh, about how to do group brainstorming. And their advice was for, because uh, it's true that groups, you know, there is such a thing as group intelligence and wisdom of the crowds, and, and we can benefit from, especially a cognitively diverse group of people can often out-innovate or out-brainstorm, right, an individual acting alone. So that's true. But what's also true is that you put a bunch of people in a room and have them just riff in real time, you, you, you get some of this Nietzsche point about the insanity uh, and the group think that can emerge. And so Bob's advice is for each individual person to brainstorm on their own and then show up at the meeting having done some pre-work of their own and share that view before it gets sort of corrupted and shaped by the group melee. And, and I think that that's what you're sort of saying. It's, it's the both, right? It's the individual thinking and then coming into contact with the group. Yeah, critical importance here. And anybody who is a software developer that's part of an agile uh, an agile software development process that is well executed in terms of how the team works, how the PM works, and how uh, the projects are managed themselves, and what the agile process that's used is, will recognize some of this in the same way that another time, I mean, the brainstorming that happens when everybody just sits down and starts brainstorming is useless. 
the brainstorming where everybody's thought of something in advance uh, and then you talk around a topic. It, by the way, it's kind of reflective of the Amazon, write the memo, and then everybody sits and reads the memo first before you have the conversation and then you reach a conclusion. The agile thing that I learned from when I was on the board of, of Rally Software uh, a decade ago was this multimodal experience where you have one or two person or at most three person groups, and then you come together as a larger group, and then you separate and you come together and you separate. So you're constantly doing this multimodal dynamic because a lot of the work is multimodal, right? When you're doing development, a lot of times you may be working with somebody else. If you are a pair programming shop, you're going to be working with one other person, but then you get together as a group and work on sets of things, but then you go back to that other modality. Unfortunately, for some reason in, in the uh, brainstorming logic or the problem solving logic or the meeting flow, think of all the meetings that people are in where, you know, there's an agenda and there's a leader, but nobody's done any pre-work. And really when you're in the meeting, there are big power disparities or discrepancies between people in the room um, just in terms of their natural power. And there's behavioral discrepancies Person A is quiet and doesn't want to step up. Person B, you know, is is a, a, a classic bolsterous person who is not aware that um, he is not giving the three women in the room room to speak and is cutting them off constantly. And then there's the other person who's trying to all of a sudden change the dynamics of the meeting. And the leader of the meeting is just trying to get to the answer that they probably wanted to get to when they convened the meeting in the first place. You know, I don't know what percentage of our management life is like that, but that's shitty. And it's just not that useful. There are so many better ways of doing it. And I think that's what Nietzsche is, again, not as a management theorist, but as a philosopher trying to point at the modality needs to change. Brad, so much wisdom in this book. Uh, thank you for surfacing Nietzsche to uh, founders everywhere and uh, appreciate you being part of the podcast. It's lovely to always see you. I know our podcast people will only hear us. I hope they hear the, the joy in my voice uh, for getting to spend some time with you. And we'll have you on another time to do the second half of the conversation with questions <laughs> about Foundry and other questions. But this is a great Nietzsche-oriented episode. And thanks so much. And everyone can pick up the book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. Thanks, Brett. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.